Brought to you by Sage Summit Live, the virtual conference that provides all the highlights of Sage Summit from the convenience of your desk. Celebrity entrepreneurs, insightful workshops, absolutely free. Register at sagesummitlivestream.com. Yeah, this is how the economies of the future are uh, making their mark, right? Not with a uh, bang or, or remote control, but with uh, some cream on your face, right? Fair enough. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. It's Thursday, August 18th. I'm Kate Smith, an editor for Bloomberg News here in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. So today we're going to be talking about the economics of beauty, and specifically that in South Korea. And to help us do that, we have a couple of really special guests. So first, we have Nina Bahadur, and she's here in the studio with us in New York. Uh, Nina's a senior editor at Self.com, which is a Condé Nast publication. And a bit later on the show, we're going to be bringing on Alicia Yoon, and she's the founder of Peach & Lily, which is a Korean beauty company that sells products to U.S. consumers. But more on that later. So here's the background for the show that we're going to be talking about today. A few weeks ago, I told the Benchmark team about this idea for an episode, the idea that South Korean women, and men for that matter, they spend as much, way, way more money on their beauty regimens than virtually anywhere in the world. And I'm not talking about things necessarily like lipsticks and eyeliner, but also their skincare specifically. And everyone thought I was wrong. Um, but uh, when we looked into the numbers, it was actually even more true than we originally had thought. I'm not even close to anything resembling an expert in this kind of subject, Kate. I have no kind of skincare routine. The only the only product I use, if you can call it that, is shaving cream. So <laughs> I'm basically starting from zero on this topic. And I had to do some research of my own. So I contacted the folks at Euromonitor, which is a, a market research firm, they were uh, friendly enough to provide some some helpful data statistics to help uh, figure this out. And then my colleague, Alex Tanzi, who's kind of our data guru here in D.C., helped calculate these, uh, these uh, spending figures on beauty and cosmetic products against per capita GDP. And, uh, you know, we actually found that South Korea is all the way on top of that list, and they spent almost 1% of their per capita GDP on beauty and personal care. And their figures were up 24% from five years ago. You compare that to the United States, for example, and the United States was just under half a percentage point, And that was about half of what the uh, Korean spending was as a proportion of per capita spending. And you know, in Asia is not just limited to South Korea. Japan and Hong Kong were also two of the other top five spots for the highest amount of per capita GDP spent on beauty products. And it's, again, not just their money that they're spending, but it's also their time. This is, I think, one of the most fascinating statistics I've read about this, and it's that the average South Korean woman spends 55 minutes on her skincare regimen. But, I mean, it can be also up to two or three hours a day, Scott. And, I mean, I spent 20 minutes on my skin last night, and I thought I was doing really, really well. But apparently in the global spectrum of things, I, I did not. <laughs> but, Nina, help us out here. And first of all, thanks for joining us. Thank it's you great so to have you in the studio. Having me. So what's so different about beauty in Asia that they can spend twice as much money and so much more time? Sure. I imagine there are two things at play here. One is that there are many more steps in your average skincare routine than there are in a Western woman. So for example, people in the US might cleanse, tone, and moisturize and think they're doing a very complex routine. Or they might use an SPF in the morning and a retinol at night, and that seems 
you know, very high tech and that seems like they're doing a great job. Whereas full disclosure, that's exactly what I do and I think I'm I think I'm really great about that. That's what I do <laughs> I don't as do well. That. <laughs> Scott, you don't do that? No retinol? No. Scott, I have some some SPF, I'll have to send it to you. Thank you. I'd love to have some. <laughs> but generally speaking, there are more steps involved in a Korean inspired skincare routine. And then the second thing is that I think the quality of the product is excellent. It's world class. Korean skincare companies are absolutely known for the incredible high quality of their products, which comes with a price tag. So I can talk you guys through a 10-step Korean beauty routine. So Nina, this is a radio show, right? So you can't see what's going on in the studio right now. But there there is a pile of products in front of Nina. And apparently this is what... Korean women do most nights in their evening. I mean, I think I'm counting. Is that is that eleven different things? Yeah, some of them are doubles of the same thing. Okay, just so we can okay. look at different things. <laughs> the first step is an oil cleanser, which removes sunscreen and any other oil-based products. Then the second step is a foam cleanser, which so removes double cleansing. That's double cleansing, right. yes, okay. is the big thing. So a foam cleanser removes dirt or sweat. Third step would be exfoliation. That's usually a product with a bit more grit in it, and it removes dead skin cells. The fourth step is toner, which hydrates and refreshes the skin. Step five is the essence, and this is a big trend we're seeing people pick up more and more, which you should think of as a primer that helps your skin absorb the products you're layering on next. And that's often described as the heart of green skincare. And people in the U.S. are really learning more about this. Now, is that the same as when, like, Western women think of, like, a serum? So step six is the serum. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. So the serum um, is something that contains a few active ingredients that address specific issues. So some okay. some people have one for dark spots for, or for redness. Step seven is a sheet mask. You probably wouldn't do this every night, maybe twice a week. And those, Scott, just in case you didn't know, are a uh, cotton mask sat- or a fabric mask saturated with different products to address different issues. Um, and then your next step would be eye cream. Wait, there's more. Oh, yeah. We're only, we have not gotten to step eight is the are eye cream. Are we halfway cream. through this yet? We are, there are only 10 steps, Scott. You, you'll be okay. So the eye cream, any specific eye concerns you have so puffiness or under eye circles or fine lines okay um step nine would be your face cream your moisturizer locks in the moisture keeps you looking dewy and young and then the final and to me the most important step is your spf so i think this explains probably some of the background to this episode which is that when we were talking about this episode everyone assumed all of the the latest greatest beauty things were coming out of places in western europe i mean l'oreal in um in france of course and things like that i mean that that's really shifting though because south korea ever since the mid 2000s they they've really been slowly creeping up on those giants the l'oreal the lancome mm-hmm. um you know some of the most savvy beauty buyers aren't necessarily going to saks to try to find the next beautiful face cream they're looking online and looking in south korean companies and yeah. i mean some of our listeners are probably more familiar with uh south korean government supported companies like samsung lg kia things like that but those were the same overlevered companies that actually pulled Korea into a recession in the mid-1990s, which culminated in a $57 billion bailout that came from the IMF. And, and now, Kate, you're, you're starting to speak my language again because I was, <laughs> really, I was really fading there, and I just had no idea what, what to say. But, you know, finally, talking about the Korean economy, all right, I can, I can get involved in that. Okay. Of course, you know, when we talk about that now— you know, you still have those those big companies, and the Korean economy has been has been rising 
for some time, but they're not the only game in town for them. And they're, the Korean government has turned to its entertainment industry in some way, you know, or, or it's developed, and it's, it's become almost a form of soft power. K-pop, you think of Gangnam Style, <laughs> that I can't believe it, but it's really kind of shifted the focus to skincare and, and gotten so many uh, you know, people around Asia to, to want to look like Korean pop stars. Uh, there, there's been tax incentives for beauty exports, a tax break on beauty companies that are export only, uh, a 10% tax break on cosmetic procedures aimed at potential Chinese plastic surgery patients. I mean, this has all kind of helped boost the economy in, in some way and turn the attention to Korea, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, and all of those incentives, it seems to have worked in some sense. I mean, for a country, and let's let's also put this in perspective, South Korea is a country that is a little larger than the state of Maine. So a country of that size is home to thousands of different beauty companies. And last year, for the first time, the country exported more beauty products than it imported. And overseas sales for those beauty products, they rose by 73%. Now, Scott, Put that in context for us, for our listeners, about all other South Korean exports. Well, South Korean exports have been falling pretty precipitously for the last year. I mean, most recently in in July, I think there was a 10% drop from a year earlier. So overall trade, kind of like the rest of the world, is is uh, is slipping. And you see the, the Export-Import Bank of Korea has called uh, beauty a quote-unquote promising industry, meaning it has the potential to post over $10 billion worth of overseas sales in the next five to 10 years. Now, it's only at about uh, $1.5 billion now, which is uh, you know well under 1% of, <laughs> of overall trade. But you know if you boost that a fair amount, it does actually become a growth industry for South Korea and engine in its trade and you know help the economy grow if, say, like Samsung isn't selling enough cell phones and that kind of thing. That's I mean, what, what? Maybe, maybe Nina can just fill us in and tell us more about what is the over, what is the perception of these products? Are, are South Korean products the premier products now instead of the traditional brands? I think for young people and young women like Kate and myself who are always looking for the most advanced and the next big thing, that Korean beauty is absolutely mm. what we want to be looking at. I, yeah, and it seems like kind of all of the the emphasis that the Korean government has put on projecting these to be the most innovative products in the world, it, I mean, it seems to have worked. Uh, Nina, thank you so much for uh, helping a couple of finance geeks like Scott and myself figure out <laughs> what these numbers actually mean. Um, so we're going to take a quick break uh, to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we're going to dig into the history of these beauty products. Where did this 10 set regime come from? And to do that, we're going to bring on Alicia Yoon. She's a Harvard Business School grad and the founder of Peach and Lily, which is a Korean beauty company that brings KBD to the U.S. Brought to you by Sage Summit Live, the virtual conference that provides all the highlights of Sage Summit from the convenience of your desk. Celebrity entrepreneurs, insightful workshops, absolutely free. Register at sagesummitlivestream.com. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners, Alicia founded uh, Peach and Lily in 
2012. It's a it's a Korean beauty e-commerce company, and they actually opened their first brick-and-mortar store here in New York, uh, the Macy's in Flushing, uh, last November, and they opened their second physical store near Pasadena in California last June. So congratulations. On thank you so much. Yeah. So Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. Alicia, tell us a little bit about your background. You're, you're from Seoul, right? Yeah. So I was born in Seoul, moved to the States, moved back when I was in elementary school, and I was there basically until college. So I grew up in both places. Um, and I trained as an esthetician actually in Korea and a U.S. licensed esthetician as well. So just also interesting to see how on a formal education basis, the approach to skincare is actually quite different in the two countries. Um, and I actually started off my career in finance and consulting. I was at Goldman Sachs and the Boston Consulting Group for a while. Oh, so you're back home at Bloomberg. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, just always having been passionate about skincare and realizing that these amazing Korean beauty products weren't available stateside. You know, I left BCG in 2012 to start Peach and Lily. I'm curious, actually, you know, growing up, Alicia, you know, when when were you introduced to this kind of skincare routine or when did the idea of Korean beauty first kind of materialize in your life? That's a really funny question because I can't even remember because it's sort of like in the U.S. a mother will be teaching their child how to brush their teeth. It's just a very basic and fundamental part of self-care and so it's always something you know I've been taught ever since I was a tiny toddler And so, yeah, just as long as I could remember, it was a part of my life. See, that's fascinating to me because in the U.S., makeup and skincare, it's almost taught as if it's this kind of reluctant thing your mother will bring you to the department store and, you know, get you set up with what you need. But it's not something like a necessity. It's always considered an indulgence. It seems like that's not the case, though, in South Korea. Not at all. (laughs) In fact... In the U.S., people have very open conversations about their fitness, their nutrition. In Korea, that's the same thing with skincare. And if you were to say, you know, I don't take care of my skin, you know, people might wonder, you know, why don't you? It's good for you. Right. It's It's like saying you don't take a shower every day. (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. Let's actually talk about Peach and Lily for a moment. Alicia, can you tell us about the economics of the beauty business? I mean, if skincare in Korea is important as showering or brushing your teeth, face cream is actually, you know, especially the Korean brands, those can be a lot more expensive than a tube of toothpaste. Is this the kind of thing that people pay for no matter what it is? Is it price sensitive? Does it depend on how much income you have? So first, when it comes to Korean women in Korea spending on skincare, it's not as elastic as other industries and categories. You know, obviously it's not like sustenance, Mm -hmm. but it is one of those things that you invest in as self-care. Having said that, in Korea, it's one of the leading countries when it comes to really discerning what products are good. It's no longer the era where just because something is expensive, you would think, oh, that's a better product. Korean women will dig into the formulations and they'll look for value. So it's not that they're necessarily looking for cheaper products, but they're looking for products that really are priced at value. So you're getting, you know, even if you're spending $300, you're getting something really incredible for that. So Korean beauty brands really can't get away with too much. Just pure marketing doesn't work anymore. It has to be efficacious. So even lower income customers are spending a a lot of money on these kinds of things? For sure, people with higher income are spending more. And not just with products, but with treatments and, you know, facials on a weekly basis. 
But at the same time, you know, there are amazing beauty products that are priced at mass prices. And so when I interview a lot of beauty brands in Korea, one thing they always say is, you can make money in any segment. You can price things low, you can price things high. There are going to be people who gather around those products. The only thing you need to care about is, you know, your pricing strategy really depends on your distribution strategy, but the fundamental thing is just have a great product. Alicia, this has been fascinating. It's really, it's a whole new frontier of beauty products. So thank you so much for kind of putting that into context for us. And Nina, thank you as well for, you know, helping us out with exactly putting these uh, these economic numbers into actual products and things. Uh, so Scott, this is this has been fascinating. It is. It is. It's a learning experience for me. <laughs> I mean, the stuff that women have to go through just to you know, feel like they're taking care of their skin is uh, is mind blowing. But I mean, what about the idea that kind of South Korea has pulled themselves out of an economically tricky spot, and capitalizing on kind of this innate national trend? I mean, what do you think about that? Well, I think I think the jury's still out on that. I think it'll <laughs> probably take a while for you know to to truly show whether the you know the beauty industry is having a massive effect on GDP. But it is a fact that. You know, a lot of the it, it has become a significant growth industry, and a lot of the world knows about it. So it's almost like becoming on a par with uh, Samsung phones, LG TVs, Hyundai, Kia cars, that sort of thing. It seems like because I'm wondering, you know, if things get bad in here in the U.S., are we going to have to start uh, exporting the Kardashians? Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> Gosh, can you? Imagine? I think they've already taken over a lot of the world. Anyway. I think so too. I don't think they need the government's help. Well, you know, this is how the economies of the future are uh, making their mark, right? Not with a uh, bang or or remote control, but with uh, some cream on your face, right? Fair enough. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, Bloomberg Benchmark will be back next week, and until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to and follow us on Twitter at, at Scott Landman and at by Kate Smith. And don't forget to follow our guests as well. They're on Twitter. You can find Nina at N Bahadur. And you can also find Alicia's uh, Peach and Lily at, at Peach and Lily. And I highly recommend checking out their Instagram page as well. It is fascinating. I'm I'm a little addicted to it now, Scott. <laughs> I'm going to check it out, too. You should. To see what it's like. <laughs> Thanks so much. See you next week. Brought to you by Sage Summit Live, the virtual conference that provides all the highlights of Sage Summit from the convenience of your desk. Celebrity entrepreneurs, insightful workshops, absolutely free. Register at sagesummitlivestream.com.